listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Earlier this year in May, a former Clinton White House staffer allegedly took his own life under exceedingly shady circumstances. Mark Middleton, a former top aide to Clinton's chief of staff, Thomas Mac McClarty, was found dead at a property tied to Heifer International, an NGO with direct ties to the Clinton quote-unquote philanthropies. Middleton was found with an extension cord around his neck and a shotgun wound to the chest. Photos and video taken at the death scene were sealed by an Arkansas court shortly after news broke of Middleton's death. Notably, just a few months prior, it had been revealed that Middleton had been the man who had met with Jeffrey Epstein during the vast majority of Epstein's 17 visits to the White House. It had previously been reported that Epstein had met with Middleton around five times at the White House, but visitor logs released by the UK's Daily Mail last December revealed that the actual number was much, much higher. Around that same time, in December of last year, the Daily Mail also published a photograph of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell greeting then-President Clinton back in 1993, effectively eradicating the narrative that Clinton had not met Jeffrey Epstein until after he had left the White House. Tellingly, hardly any American media outlet covered the story, including news of Middleton's subsequent gruesome death. So who exactly was Mark Middleton, and what was his role at the White House, and why was he meeting with Epstein? In exploring these questions, as I've noted in some recent interviews, the riddle of Mark Middleton gets very complicated and very crazy very quickly. To briefly summarize, well over a decade before Epstein's first arrest in 2006, Middleton had sat in the center of a massive scandal of the Clinton era, which today is largely forgotten. It was the subject of a major congressional investigation that continued from the last years of the Clinton administration and into the administration of George W. Bush. To stall that investigation, it was Bush, not Clinton, who stepped in, invoking for the first time in his presidency executive privilege, precisely to prevent documents about none other than Mark Middleton from being handed over to Congress. Shortly thereafter, the events of September 11, 2001, led to the premature closure of that investigation due to more pressing matters that arose in the aftermath of those attacks. Joining me today to help unravel the mysteries of Mark Middleton is Ed Berger. Ed worked as my research assistant for my soon-to-be-released two-volume book, One Nation Under Blackmail, which explores the union between organized crime and intelligence that later gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein and much more. He is one of the most incredible and detailed researchers I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, and it's fair to say that the book would not have been finished on time or be nearly as good as it is without his very important contributions. Ed also co-hosts the Pseudodoxology podcast, which I highly recommend if you are interested in original and ultra deep dives about the real history of this country and beyond. So thanks for joining me today, Ed. How's it going? Hey, it's not going too bad. And uh, thanks for that awesome introduction. Yeah, of course. Well, I think you're super awesome. And there is no one I would rather be talking about Mark Middleton with. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Um, And part of that's because he's a really complicated guy. And uh, you were one of the very one of the few people I think that is capable of, you know, helping unravel a lot of that complexity, especially on this topic. And we work together on a good bit of this. So, you know, it just, you know, makes the most logical sense. So I guess um, to get started, we should probably try and uh, go back as far as we we could really about into who Mark Middleton is to sort of try and demystify uh, what was going on here and at the Clinton White House uh, during the time he was there and in the years, um, you know, between then and his untimely death earlier this year. So, um, so as far as we know, you know, like I said earlier in the introduction, Middleton was working as a special assistant to Thomas Mac McClarty. Uh, He was allegedly hired by McLarty for that role because he was McLarty was so impressed with his fundraising bundling efforts uh, for the Clinton presidential campaign in 1992 
Um, and, but before that, it's really hard to find out what Middleton was exactly doing, though one article from the 90s in the Los Angeles Times did reveal that Middleton was working uh, at Worthen Bank, which is an institution we'll get in in a moment. And um, one of the people he was working at at Worthen Bank is a guy we'll be talking about later who was central to the aforementioned major Clinton era scandal that Middleton was in the center of, a man named John Huang. So, uh, Ed, I, I think it uh, might be fitting if you would do the um, the honors of explaining why Worthen Bank, uh, you know, is significant and also sort of, uh, I guess, unpacking the people behind that institution because they're basically the people behind, uh, I guess you could say, basically the Clinton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is funny because, like, try, trying to think of how to do it in the most like short and streamlined way because Worthen Bank could be like its own kind book, of pod- yeah yeah its own book, <laughs> yeah. book. And it, there's a lot that's quite mysterious about it like in itself but I guess like to understand Worthen Bank we kind of have to understand a figure by the name of Jackson Stevens and Jackson Stevens was like an Arkansas like businessman who had these like very vast and like deep political connections so like you can find like Stevens fingerprints behind Jimmy Carter, who he knew from like his time in the U.S. Naval Academy in the 40s, mm-hmm. uh, had ties to the Reagan administration. Uh, he was a massive backer of Bush and then finally was a, a big backer of the Clintons. And Stevens, his main vehicle was a company called Stevens Inc. And what this did is it kind of started off investing in oil and gas, mainly in Arkansas and elsewhere in the South and in the Midwest, but very quickly it developed, you know, these like really far reaching economic ties, you know, financial capital, you know, in the Northeast and Wall Street, it provided financing for the startup of numerous businesses. Like it was very involved in uh, initially backing Walmart, actually, which is funny, like Hillary Clinton later was involved with them too yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah she sat on the board for i think it was like seven years or something yeah um and the reason like there's like a connection there is because kind of for the duration of when stevens inc was really big it utilizes the service of like arkansas's most prominent law firm and that was the rose law firm and since the early 70s it had been led by a man named joseph uh girard i think is how it's pronounced yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this kind of was like the hub for a lot of the, like the rising Clinton political and economic fortunes. So like figures that you would find at Rose Law would be like Hillary Clinton herself was a like a junior partner there. Uh, Webster Hubble, who would later become Bill Clinton's associate attorney general, was there. And Vince Foster, who was Clinton's White House counsel was also there for a time yeah for a time before (laughs) a very very suspicious kind of uh you know end, much like mark middleton Um, yes Mm -hmm. but in they all these individuals they had all kinds of very kind of convoluted business relations kind of starting in the 70s and going like through you know basically always like all the way up through the 1990s uh but i think when we start talking about kind of like the deep political connections of Stevens and how it gets relevant to like, you know, the kind of the topics that we're going to move into has to be understood in relation to BCCI, you know, this big um, 
kind of CIA linked bank that right. It, mm-hmm. I, I don't even really know how to ex- like describe what. Well, it is. I, I like, can, I can, yeah. I know it, it's a, it's basically like an octopus in a sense, yeah. and it, it's no coincidence that Danny Castellaro, the journalist who died in 1991, he was investigating the octopus, and BCCI was really central uh, to his investigation. So. Um, basically, I guess I would, it's the bank of credit and commerce international, but it was pretty notorious for a long time. And I think it eventually had like banks of bank of crook and corruption internet. I don't know. Some nicknames (laughs) like that floated around it for some time. Um, so basically it was, um, a hub for money laundering on a, on a massive scale, but they were also involved in a lot of other stuff like sex trafficking, arms trafficking uh, as a bank. Right. So they were obviously much more as a bank. I mean, it's really like an intelligence apparatus masquerading as a bank. They were described as having like, uh, what was it called? Like a a black network or something where they allegedly had hitmen and yeah. I mean, they had everything. I mean, yeah. So it's, it's super mental. Um, BCCI once you get into it anyway it, it, anyway the bank part of it collapsed in 1991 and that was the year of course that you have um Bill Barr as attorney general um under Bush basically step in to cover up that uh the promise software scandal um and pardon all of the people in Iran Contra all in the same year a uh, very big year for cover ups it's also the year that Robert Maxwell dies from the promise software scandal John Tower his main accomplice in promise dies Danny Castellaro dies who's investigating it and Castellaro's one of his main sources Alan Standorf also all die in 1991 i mean it's a really mental year right. um when you think about it. So anyway, we, we know from like FBI files that have been released that, um, the like investigators into BCCI were very interested in Castellaro and the promise software. Um, so we'll get into why, um, th- these BCCI investigators were into interested in, in Castellaro's investigation because there is a lot of overlap with, um, you know, the promise scandal, which again, I'll summarize briefly and BCCI because the main, you know, connection there, I would argue would be, you know, one of the main other main companies of Jackson Stevens systematics, but we'll get there um, eventually. So um, I guess when it comes to Jackson Stevens, we're trying to talk about Mark Middleton here. Um, And so, you know, we brought up what BCCI was. So I guess the most logical point now would be to explain what was Jackson Stevens uh, relationship to BCCI. And as I understand it, it comes up when BCCI starts trying to uh, penetrate the U.S. financial system. Yeah, exactly. So BCCI was kind of looking for a way in. And the way to do this was to buy up a bank. And they had to kind of do this in a, you know, kind of an incognito mode, I guess, because they were violating U.S. banking regulations. And so the main connection here comes through a guy named Bert Lance, who was kind of like an infamously corrupt, short-lived director of uh, the Office of Budget and Management under Carter. And prior to working in the Carter administration, uh, Lance was the president of a bank in Atlanta called the National Bank of Georgia. And National Bank of Georgia was owned by a bank holding company in Washington, D.C. called First General Bank Shares, or um, FGB. And FGB itself is like really kind of interesting because at the time it was owned by this uh, guy named General George Olmsted. And this individual has a really long history of like ties to U.S. intelligence and other banks that he owned were very kind of tied into the U.S. intelligent kind of like offshore apparatus. 
Uh, but due to like uh, changes that were made in holding company laws, Olmstead was being forced to sell off his ownership of first general bank shares. And he turned to the president of the subsidiary, Bert Lance, to help find a buyer. And so we don't really know how Stevens and Lance kind of got hooked up. We know that it happened around 1975. And so Lance turned to Stevens, you know, to help him like locate, you know, who, who's going to buy, you know, not just First General, but National Bank of Georgia as well. And so they start courting, you know, various individuals and groups. Like the first group was called the Middendorf Group. This was named for uh, Nixon's former ambassador to the Netherlands, a guy named Jay Middendorf. Um, he was a leader of the group and it included Armand Hammer, who's a pretty spooky oil man. Yeah, he comes up in the book a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he's everywhere. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot more to probably like kind of find with uh, him because it's just he's rather ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, and so that group fell apart and Stevens and Lance started to look into other groups. And so um they somehow I, I'm not exactly sure, but they like this happened simultaneously with BCCI looking to buy a U.S. bank. And these two kind of, I mean, obviously it's probably through the U.S. intelligence services, these two groups kind of collided. And so that's how Stevens kind of gets wrapped up into the world of BCCI. Uh, but at the same time that this was happening, there were other people who were interested in buying the National Bank of Georgia, the, the Burt Lance Bank. And chief amongst them was a... Uh, group of bankers from Indonesia, the Riyadi family. And the patriarch of this family is Mokhtar Riyadi, the head of, you know, what's most, probably like the flagship is the, the Lippo group. And Lance had known Riyadi for some time, uh, been introduced to them by a guy named Robert B. Anderson, which is really kind of like prominent figure from the Eisenhower era. You know, they thought he would be president at one point. But by the end of the life, he is kind of mired in corruption and linked to all kinds of like BCCI entities. But this is pretty like interesting in itself because Anderson was part of a group that was known as like the Hardy Boys. And the Hardy Boys were a kind of clique of intelligence linked businessmen around William Casey, Reagan's CIA director. And if you start like kind of pulling back like the lid on the Hardy Boys, you find that a lot of them actually were very tied up with Indonesia. Like Casey himself, if you look at his confirmation hearings, um, there were allegations that he acted as a foreign agent for Indonesian interests yeah. and mm -hmm. failed to disclose this. And so, you know, there's a very strong possibility that this whole connection to the Riyadis, you know, coming through Robert B. Anderson was connected up with like a wider U.S. intelligence um, Indonesia relationship. But at any rate, you know, the Riyadis ended up not buying National Bank of Georgia, uh, ended up going to BCCI interests. Ultimately, at the same time, they were buying First General. But uh, Stevens and the Riyadis kind of stayed in close contact with one another. And as you go from like the 1970s, into the 1980s, they really begin to develop a really strong banking network, not just in Arkansas, but in Asia proper. So like yeah. together, Stevens Inc., 
and Riyadi's Lippo group by this like bank in Macau that had these like very kind of notorious ties to triad gangs. Yeah, and, and just to interrupt you really yeah. quick, sorry. Uh, I think it's important to point out to for people that like don't know, Macau is basically like Las Vegas, <laughs> but yes. like the East Asian version of that. It at at the time it wasn't tech. It, it was sort of like Hong Kong, you know. It was like an enclave mm-hmm. uh, originally Portuguese, and it came under Chinese control after the events we're going to talk about today. But Macau comes up a couple times. Uh, because, you know, one of the main themes in, in the book, right, is organized crime and intelligence coming together. And in China, uh, you see that sort of happening with Macau <laughs> businessmen yeah. um, to a significant degree as well. Um, so anyway, I'll let you pick back up where you were. No, I think it's a really good like thing to point out. And I guess one of the things that made Macau like so unique in the area that you're talking about is that it was the major center for like the global gold trade. In the time period, you know, like before 1972, when like it was hyper uh, regulated. And so like there was lots of illicit, like it was kind of like a big money laundering hub. And the bank that Stevens and Riotti bought, which is called like the Sang Hang Bank, uh, it was like the premier like gold, like laundering bank. So, you know, there's like questions like, why do they buy this particular bank? Uh, but the, the same year that they bought this bank, you know, this Macau Bank, they also took control of um, what was called the First Arkansas Bank Stock Corporation, or FABCO for short. And it was the, this bank holding company that was owned by a Texas oil man named John Hendricks. And he was out of Midland Bank. And from what I can tell, I've been looking a bit more into him. He seems to have had like banking ties to the Bush family. So that, that's interesting in itself. Uh, but he sold this Always Fabco. Fun. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so he sold Fabco to the Stevens and the Riottis. And Fabco had numerous Arkansas banks that were kind of like under under its umbrella. Like, for example, one of them was a First National Bank of Mina, Arkansas, which I think is particularly interesting because this is where, you know, like the kind of CIA who was running cocaine into this town. I mean, yeah, the the Barry Seal Mina connection yeah. and all of that stuff. I'm I'm pretty sure most listeners of this podcast are familiar with that. If not, um you can read the book. Yeah, <laughs> cuz we yeah. talk about it. It's a great yeah. chapter on it. Um yeah, so I mean that that's pretty suspicious, I think that they had that particular bank. Uh they used this vehicle to buy like a number of other banks like Joseph Griar, the guy from uh the Rose Law Firm. They had him purchasing other banks and then like selling them to Fabco, which they now control. So they created this like kind of banking empire in Arkansas. And the very kind of center of it was this bank called Worthen Bank. And Worthen Bank, you know, was under their control. Uh, Rose Law Firm was like the de facto law firm that Worthen used. And so like it, if you kind of trace out like the whole web of like Clinton business and political connections, it's almost like kind of like a spoke, you know, like a hub and a wheel, right? Yeah. Like Worthen Bank just is, is the money conduit for like, you know, it, it's the glue that kind of holds it all together as far as I can tell. Right. So that's, you know, the, the center of like this, like kind of Arkansas corruption. Yeah. With, with the, the, with Stevens and Riotti sort of the center of it. So 
Yeah. All we know about Middleton, right, before the Clinton White House or the Clinton administration comes comes to power is that he had previously worked for Worthen Bank at some point. So he's obviously part of this network of influence, I guess you could say. Jackson Stevens and, and the Riottis are major power players behind, um, you know, Clinton's uh, time as governor of Arkansas. And then obviously in a big way when he um, becomes president as well. So um, some important background to bring up, I think now. Um, is related to Stevens and, and systematics, and I'm not going to go too uh, in depth about it, but it is it is does kind of give you an idea of like what um, was going on here. And again, we don't know exactly like 100% of what was going on here, right? But the picture it, painted by what we know, it, it you know pretty much should tell you more or less what what the deal was. So you know. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit ago, Ed, how they had, you know bought these uh, big banks in, in East Asia, specifically Macau, and they were involved in, in the gold trade and all of this. But specifically, Macau is also known as being a major hub for money laundering. Part of that's because of the, you know, like I made that Las Vegas comparison earlier. I mean, it's a casino hub. Yes. Uh, thinking of people like Sheldon Adelson, um, no longer on the planet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I always like to remind myself that he's not here anymore. It's nice. So, <laughs> um, anyway, he had all his casinos, not all of them, but a lot of the big ones in, in Macau, right? Oh, Probably did he really? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Oh, I didn't so, know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it, you know, it, it's a sus area for casinos, and people have argued that the money laundering and, you know, the scale of it, specifically before China took over uh, Macau, I think in 1999. Or so, I mean, the money that the money laundering was was totally out of control. So when we're talking about, you know, the Stevens and the Riottis, it, it, it's pretty clear to me anyway, that they were very involved with you know, money laundering in the banking system, not just because of the Macau connection, but you have BCCI there. And then you have Systematics. So Systematics is important because this is a company that Jackson Steven controlled. Um, and it basically, and it's also tied up with Rose Law Firm people like Vince Foster, people, uh, you know, individuals Webster like Hubble, that. Yeah. 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 And it's, um, basically one of the main th things it does is, is it sells software to banks and Jackson Stevens and this whole network, um, you know, through these financial institutions, we already sort of, sort of touched on Mina, Arkansas, the whole Iran Contra angle, uh, and what was going on in Arkansas on the time that also involved a huge amount of money laundering that was allegedly done through Arkansas financial institutions and some of these banks linked to Stevens. Mm -hmm. So at some point, Systematic starts basically selling the Promise software. Um, I don't, I don't think I've done like a specific podcast on Promise before, and some of you may may know of it. And I've done some recent interviews about it specifically because the anniversary of Danny Casalero's death was like last month. Um, but I, another massively complex scandal to summarize. <laughs> to yeah. <a> <laughs> yeah, it's so funny that we have to give little thumbnails of like a million different things to explain. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the only way you can understand the stuff. Otherwise, it just you, you can't see the the whole picture, you know. So absolutely, basically, there was an effort by Isra Israeli intelligence and the CIA to backdoor this software that was stolen by the Reagan era Justice Department from a company called Inslaw Inc. And it was called Promise. Promise is an abbreviation. It's something like prosecutor management information software or something like that, if I remember correctly. So um, at some, there, there were two versions of Promise going around that were backdoored, um, meaning that intelligence agencies had covert access to wherever they were installed. Um, and so you had Israel with their version and most of that was marketed by Robert Maxwell and, you know, I guess Earl Bryan and some other people. Um, 
mainly to governments, specifically intelligence agencies or security agencies of governments all over the world. And there was another version that was developed um, at Wackenhut in by Wackenhut in California, um, which is another complicated um, <laughs> situation <laughs> to explain. But basically there's, you know, uh, drug cartels, organized crime and intelligence all tied up in there. And they backdoor promise too. Um, and then, but this version of promise, it was mostly sold to banks. And one of the vehicles for selling that to banks was systematics. Yeah. And that, and so promise eventually starts to be used by a lot of major banking institutions, including BCCI, also including the world bank. And mm -hmm. it, it gets, you know, again, it gets really crazy really quickly because you have people involved in like the sale of promise for the purpose of using it in, in the financial system. You have people like, Adnan Khashoggi involved. Yeah. That's weird, right? <laughs> you know, like a weapons dealer and stuff. So like you you see all these people pop up. And basically, um, you know, it the the what promise was used for was either was to track stuff. I mean, that's what it was good at. So it either tracked people or it tracked money. And so it was very useful to money launderers because it allowed them to launder money more effectively than ever before and on a much bigger scale. Right. Yeah. And I, I think like the way that I understand promise is that it was kind of a, a modular system that allowed you to bring together like multiple different databases. Also, and so it's yeah. like, yeah. So like that's kind of like how its tracking capacity worked was by kind of integrating these databases, like siloing them. Um, yeah. You could go from like one you know, you'd have that information. You can track it across. Time so space. anyway, as, as I see it, it, wherever promise got installed in the, in the financial world, this mafia or group, you know, group around Stevens, this web swamp, whatever you want to call it, you know, gets access to these banks um, through promise. There's a back door in it and they can track it and they can launder money, whatever. And so, you know, I, and I, this is pointed out in the book too. Epstein was very much involved in this world, had a relationship with BCCI and, and all of these actors here. So in, in, in this period, you know, in the eighties, he talked about how he could um, help hide or find looted money and, you know, sort of, sort of basically like doing what, what promise was doing for some other people. And maybe he even used promise. I mean, we don't really know, but yeah. you know, he's definitely swimming around in, in this world at the time. Right. So it's significant that you have Middleton here, um, you know, basically swimming in that same world. And maybe they probably didn't connect back in the eighties, but they definitely did in the, in the nineties. And so, you know, this is some important uh, background as well, as we'll get into later. So, um, I guess now is probably a good time to talk about <laughs> um, what I think is is mis really a misnomer, but this scandal that Mark Middleton was at the center of at the White House, which overlaps with the exact same period of time he was meeting with Epstein, um, is most by most people remembered as China Gate, um, but it's really more accurately called Riyadi Gate, with yeah. the Riyadis again standing for the family of Mokhtar Riyadi, and I think you know mainly his son James is the the one that pops up here a lot. Um, but, you know, I think that's a much more accurate name. Uh, and <laughs> we can get into yeah, that. I would definitely that, is. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also remembered too, as like the illegal finance contribution scandal or something because it Campaign involved a lot finance of, controversy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it did involve illegal financing, but there's obviously a lot more going on. So I think that's also <laughs> a misnomer because you're focusing on just, okay, so they took illegal donations but they're not looking at what happened as a result of those illegal donations being made right so yeah for sure yeah so uh we have a lot to get into <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, with that being said, so, right. So Mark Middleton, as I mentioned earlier, was special assistant to Mac McClarty, who was chief of staff for a couple years. And then I think until like mid-1994, he uh, has a change in position. He becomes special envoy for the Americas. And then he's like a special advisor, like counselor to the president. And Middleton uh, was described as a former Little Rock lawyer with ties to Clinton prior to him becoming president. And we know he worked at Worthen Bank. We don't know, as far as I know, what law firm he was involved with. Maybe it was Rose Law. That might I, make sense. I, I, it wasn't Rose Law. And oh, I, I believe that it was the law firm that Jim Guy Tucker worked at. And this was Clinton's, um, like his uh, lieutenant governor, and then who succeeded huh. him as governor. But it's funny because Jim Guy Tucker actually got his career started at Rose Law. So still the sort of like a satellite for maybe in terms yeah, of yeah. this network. Yeah. So and he was indicted as part of the um, Whitewater investigations. Like I think he did jail time for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, makes sense. Yeah. A lot of these people should be in jail. So as I mentioned earlier, Epstein visited the the White House about um a lot of his early visits were involved. The first one was involved, involved Robert Rubin, who later goes on to be um, treasury secretary under Clinton. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, two meetings in 1993 involved this um, uh, donor uh, reception to the white house historical association, which is interesting for other reasons, but we're not getting into that today uh, <laughs> because that is like another whole hive of insanity. So anyway, it, most of the visits took place in, in 1994 and the last one was January, 1995. So most of these visits are taking place in a relatively short period of time. And several of these visits, uh, well, not several, but on a couple of them, you know, there's two, he goes twice to the white house in one day, I think on three separate times throughout 1994. So, so he's going pretty regularly. And this is the same year. Well, really 1994 to 96 that the, you know, the, co-conspirators of quote-unquote Chinagate are also going and meeting with Middleton. Um, So uh, when it came out more recently, as I mentioned earlier in the intro, the Daily Mail was the people, was the outlet that was reporting on on Middleton's um, meetings with Epstein. And they quoted a guy that was familiar with Middleton's role at the White House as saying that uh, Mark Middleton knew that Epstein was managing Leslie Wexner's money. And he says 1994 was when they were dealing with midterm elections and and Mark Middleton thought he could get some some of Wexner's money to benefit the DNC, right? So this is important because, as we mentioned a little bit ago, this whole scandal that Middleton becomes involved in is allegedly about illegal financing, but it's really a lot more than that. And so we have to keep all this in mind when we're trying to demystify (laughs) what Epstein (laughs) was doing there. But another one of these people that was really involved in illegal financing and who was very much involved in this uh, swamp of Jackson Stevens and the Riotti family uh, is a guy named John Huang or Johnny mm-hmm. Huang, I guess, as he was referred to in the media as a lot. And he also raised a lot of illegal funds uh, for the DNC for that particular um, election cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Huang has this really long banking career before he ends up, you know, in this kind of bizarre web around the Clinton White House. And I, I try to really trace it back. There's a lots of kind of gaps and unexplained areas like we know he went to the university of connecticut studied business relations there um he became the head of like a u.s china student body 
at that time. There's really no details about that. But uh, during the 1970s, he moved to D.C. where he took a job at a little known bank called the American Security Bank. And it's really hard to find many details at all. You know, there's two places where you can find information about this bank. One of them is the uh, campaign finance controversy documents. The other turns out to be like in a lot of the BCCI documents that are declassified. Uh, We know that this was the bank that was used by the Chinese embassy in DC, but particularly interesting, I think, is its role that it played in BCCI's penetration of the U.S. banking system. So, you know, like we talked earlier about this financial general bank shares. The, this was the bank that BCCI took over. Uh, after they took it over, they took the bank like public and, you know, kind of like sold shares of it on the open market. And when people bought shares of financial general, they had to do it through two banks. One of them, of course, was Chase Manhattan. And then the other was American Security Bank. So Huang, you know, the time in which he was at American Security Bank actually overlaps kind of perfectly in time with, you know, its interactions with BCCI. Uh, After American Security Bank, he moved to Kentucky, where he joined the international division of a bank called First National Bank of Louisville. And this bank is like really fascinating, you know. Yeah, it, they're mental. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. Briefly, t- you know, it's in the book a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I think is pretty significant about them, and especially their international division, is that they were partnered with a bank from St. Louis and this kind of curious outfit called the World Finance Corporation, and they launched this bank in Panama called Unibank which they used to make loans to Colombia's agricultural sector. Now this might Quote be unquote, yeah, this might be significant sector. because yeah. yeah, World Finance Corporation was run by former CIA trained Cuban exiles and it was a front for like a massive cocaine laundering like cocaine running and money laundering operation. Yeah. Uh, and if you you can look at court documents about this and like you had like attorney generals and like state AGs quitting saying like the CIA is not letting us prosecute this bank. And you had actually found ties between, you know, World Finance Corporation and like Leslie Wexner's circle. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a interesting kind of connection too. Um, World Finance Corporation, when it kind of fell apart, right in the time period when Huang is at First National of Louisville, some of its apparatuses were then purchased by BCCI. And so after this, Huang moves to a bank in Memphis called uh, Union Planters Bank. And this is a bank that had like kind of extensive ties into Arkansas. It was like where the elite of Arkansas would bank, even though it is in Tennessee, uh, recently learned that this was another bank that was very closely tied to BCCI and also um, was particularly involved in its purchasing of first general bank shares. And so like, I, I didn't really realize this before until like I was kind of sitting down and like, you know, kind of going over my notes for this episode. And I was like, oh, th- this is really weird. Cause it's like, you have American Security Bank, it's like linked to BCCI. 
you have First National Bank of Louisville that's tied up with the World Finance Corporation and kind of like BCCI by extension, you know, Union Planters, it's BCCI again. And it's when he's at Union Planters where he allegedly just like by chance meets James Riotti, who is Mokhtar Riotti's son. But like kind of going back and looking at this, I'm starting to kind of doubt that story, you know? I mean, they lie a lot about when they first met. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think I found like inconsistencies across time. Like, you know, there's a story that they met in Hong Kong. There's a story that they met in Arkansas. The years are different, but it's like, you know, there's this shared history. It's really strange. Whatever is going on there. I think. Yeah, definitely something that should have been investigated by Congress, but wasn't (laughs) when they were looking into Huang, but you know, it's fine. So anyway, um, after that bank you mentioned, Huang ends up relocating to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's still working for Union Planters, yeah? Uh, yeah. At their Far East branch. And um, then he go, you know, after that, he ends up in having having met James Riotti. He goes to work for the family in, I think, 1985. And so I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that's when he joined Worthen Bank, yeah? Yeah, he, like, he worked as like a representative of lipo group like interests that's how it's described uh and then he yeah he goes to work for Worthen in arkansas and this is where he allegedly i think meets mark middleton allegedly so well that's from the los angeles times so you know i they don't really say much else about it except that's how long middleton and and, uh, huang have known each other um but yeah so apparently that's when they met so a couple of years later, I think 1986, he goes and works like Huang, sorry, goes to work formally for the Riotti family. So he goes to work for Lippo Bank. A lot of the Riotti family companies, like you mentioned earlier, Ed, you know, the Lippo Group, Lippo yeah. Bank, Lippo Land, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they tend to all begin with Lippo, with two Ps, by the way. I, I didn't even realize that Lippo Land was real. Like, I just thought it was like a funny nickname the press came sounds, up with. Sounds like yeah. the worst theme park of all time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, he, he, he comes, um, you know, he goes to formally basically work for the Riottis and then, um, I guess gets involved in another bank in which the Riottis are heavily invested called bank central Asia. And then he goes to, I think LA in California. And then he starts running basically the U S branch of the Lippo group for the Riottis. Yeah. Um, which has extensive real estate holdings in California, apparently. Right. And that came up with the the DNC stuff, too. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that or not when they, um, the some of the, the groups that were making donations through Huang to the DNC in the, in the 92 election. Um, yeah. It, it was just like, a, there's like a number of these kind of strange little front groups uh, that Huang seems to have been kind of managing which then were used to make these like very extensive donations to these like little apparatuses that the um, the DNC set up. So like, for example, one of them, like the DNC had this thing called the Victory Fund, which I'm not exactly sure what that is per se, but another, like there was a, a front company called like um, Hip Hing Holdings. And so like, you know, they would use these various little companies to move money into these DNC things like Hipping's Holdings, you know, gave like, is it like 60,000 or 50,000? I think it was 50,000. Yeah, 50,000 to the, the Victory Fund. Uh, and so this was seemed to have happened pretty much 
very consistently through all through 1992 and 1993. And I guess important to mention that uh, the head of the DNC at this time was a guy named Ron Brown, who we're Ron going to be Brown talking, talking yes. a lot about in a little bit, I think. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, so I think it's also important to mention too that Huang, in the same period of time, is also involved in the efforts of the Riyadi family to rescue BCCI's Hong Kong branch. That's a really which, yeah, that's an important yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, and, and and well, that becomes important later. And then he also, as part of the same campaign cycle, um, plans a Hong Kong portion of the trip. But in the DNC notes, they call it the Hong Kong Lippo portion of the trip of a DNC delegation. And so the head of that delegation again is DNC chairman. Ron Brown. And Ron Brown is very important because he is, he, you know, once Clinton comes in, into office, he becomes secretary of commerce and he's basically the main target quote unquote of China gate. Yeah. Or Riyadi gate. I guess we should just start calling it because yeah, I, I really do think that works better. Yeah. I'm just used to <laughs> like, you know, that that's the only way when pe the only people that talk about this stuff call it China gate. So it's just kind of like, you know, even though it's a misnomer, it sort of gets stuck in your brain that way. So I will unstick that and just call it, we'll just call it Riyadi Gate for the rest of the <laughs> uh, the podcast. So um, anyway, so basically, all Huang does all of this stuff in, in this, he's a very busy 1991, yeah, with trying to rescue BCCI Hong Kong, making all these shady donations to the DNC. That sort of foreshadow what he does later in the, the controversial 1996 cycle, intimately yeah. involving Mark Middleton. And somewhere, uh, Huang, uh, you know, after Clinton wins the election, Huang is basically rewarded for his services. He gets a top secret security clearance while he's still a private citizen, which is pretty nuts. And then he also... Um, you know, this was allegedly because Ron Brown, now as head of the Commerce Department, had a, quote, critical need for his, meaning Huang's, expertise. Um, and that's pretty mental. Yeah, can for get, sure. Yeah. So we can get into this a, a little bit later. Uh, but to wrap up Huang here, it's important to say that, you know, he gets this top security uh, clearance and he's doing some other weird stuff. Like he's making all these weird trips to Stevens Inc.'s headquarters um, in DC, yeah. um, around the same time he gets put in a position at the commerce department under Ron Brown. And what's also pretty weird about it is that there's records from the DNC of, um, a lady named, I, I guess her first name is Maylee, Maylee Tom is her name. And so she used to work for the DNC, but right after Clinton's elected, she's hired by the Riati family to be the Riati family's personal liaison to the DNC, to the Democrats. Right. Yeah. And so, um, Tom writes to the DNC and says, recommends Huang for a job and calls Huang, quote, the Riyadi family's top priority for placement because he is like one of their own. Yeah. And he's very much like an agent for them. That's how totally he's, yeah. you know, more than a, a spy for quote unquote China. It's a, he's the front for the Riyadis anyway. So Riyadi gate. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the, at the same time that that Maylee Thomas, you know, requesting that John Huang gets put in the Commerce Department, there's also efforts to put James Riotti himself in something involved um, with the Commerce Department, or specifically a commissioner advisory board involved with international trade or international banking, and mm. that's pretty significant too. So anyway, Huang eventually gets his position, though James Riotti doesn't, but he does end up being involved a lot with Huang and the other 
main co-conspirator of Riyadi Gate, who's a guy named Charlie Tree that we'll get to in a, in a second here. Um, but Huang basically gets approved for a position um, at Commerce. He's going to be a principal deputy assistant secretary for international economic policy at the ITA, which is the International Trade Administration. And to circle back to something really odd there, the ITA was involved with another company named Arkansas Systems tied to Systematics that was selling possibly suspect bank software to, to China's central banking system. And, you know, this was basically enabled by the ITA that was being infiltrated by re agents of the Riyadi family at the same time. So anyway, I'm not going to get too into that tangent, but it's worth mentioning about this whole idea of the penetration of the financial system by these particular groups like the Riyadi Stevens Network and all of that. So it seems like that this was one of the reasons they were involved in um, targeting this, you know, the Commerce Department specifically. Um, so it, uh, anything you want to add, Ed? Uh, yeah, with um, Arkansas Systems, I just wanted to mention that they were like financed by this thing that had been set up in Arkansas. It was called the ADFA or the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. Mm -hmm. And this entity was very much like Clinton's kind of flagship. It had grown out of an earlier housing development authority. But what it was kind of about was like, economic development and business growth and kind of very tech orientation, you know, it's going to finance uh, innovation hubs and science hubs. And it was very kind of like insidious, like um, intertwining of public and private sector uh, interests. And the way that it would work is it would sell tax exempt bonds, which were underwritten by private companies. And this would like generate a capital pool which would then be converted into like low interest loans for businesses. And so when you go back into the history and you look at a lot of the documents about the ADFA, Stevens Inc. was one of the primary underwriters that they used for these bonds that they would right. issue. And for their loans, Worthen Bank would often be the trustee on the loans. Um, and so, and then if you like look at a lot of the recipients, you know, it's always, you know, just look at any ADFA recipient. You're going to find out that, like, they use the Rose Law Firm and Stevens, Inc. is the majority shareholder in whatever X Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, it's very consistent with this pattern. And so you talk about Arkansas systems, you know, as you start, like, tracing it back, like, that's where it comes from in the first place. Like, yeah. it's kind of like you can just go in these endless, like, loops with all these companies and their ties. So, um, really though i mean it's it's nuts <laughs> i mean there yeah. was so much that like couldn't go in the book because it was just like too insane <laughs> yeah I, I, have, I have like hundreds of pages of like doc, you know notes i wrote like i felt like i was going crazy when we were researching this stuff i know it, it really is crazy so anyway um to, to not make people's brains fall out of their heads we'll try and keep it a little <laughs> yeah uh, relatively simple um, as much as we can anyway. So, you know, this particular part of the Commerce Department that Huang was at ITA, right? So uh, let's recap really quick. Huang engages in the shady stuff with the DNC. He gets top security clearance. Um, he's basically an agent of the Riyadi family while there. Um, you know, the ITA approves these um, the suspect sale of Arkansas system yeah. software to you know, the central bank of China. They're also involved in a lot of tech transfer stuff to the, the former Soviet union mm -hmm. as well, which is relevant to other stuff in the book that we're not getting into today. Um, but 
um, about not that long after uh, Huang was there at the ITA, he's he's getting classified information relating to China, specifically the ITA that he apparently wasn't supposed to have. He was supposed to recuse mm -hmm. himself from any matters involving Indonesia because he's so basically tied up with the Riyadi family. Um, and he ended up not recusing himself from issues dealing with Indonesia. And he's very involved with Ron Brown's um, trade missions to Asia specifically. And on one trade mission that happened not that long after Huang had joined the ITA, uh, Ron Brown goes uh, to China and he returns with uh, a big uh, plan, uh, I guess, what is it, a, a, a power plant project? It was financed by the Lippo Group and was going to be managed by some uh, Arkansas-connected firm called Intergy Corp. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's also interesting about Intergy, I was looking at this a little bit, uh, they were very intertwined with Enron at this time. And yeah, um, the, the Enron stuff also like, yeah. you know, why, why this book was happening. It was like, oh man, now I understand Enron so much more. Yeah. But I can't <laughs> include this stuff, you know? I know it, it was one of those things that just came up repeatedly, but I just wanted to like mention that because when Ron Brown was doing a lot of these trips, uh, he was traveling with Ken Lay a lot, who was the CEO of Enron. So that's like a whole other component of this. Yeah, whole thing. yeah. No, the Enron stuff is mental, but that's, you know, for another time. Yeah. So another thing Huang starts doing while he's at the Commerce Department, aside from this stuff, where he seems to be acting as a reagent for the Riyadis, he has like all these top security clearances, clearances he's not supposed to have. And I can't remember if I mentioned this or not. But other people at the ITA thought Huang was like not qualified at all for the work he was supposed to be doing. So it's clearly like a, you know, a favor to the Riyadis that he's there in the first place. And I guess the Stevens family as well, because, you know, he's making all these weird trips to Stephen Inc.'s offices and and no one knows why. Like from what I could glean from a lot of the documents is that the office in Stephen Inc. was which these are the Stevens Inc. like headquarters in D.C. It's, and I think it's already kind of sus that it's like across the street from the Commerce Department. Uh, it's, it, they said <laughs> yeah. that like he had his own office in there. And they like interview other people that worked in those offices like what's Huang doing in there? And everybody's like, I don't know what he's doing, but he was there all the time. Apparently. Yeah. So what was he doing? I don't know. Congress didn't find out. And no. Anyway. And in fact, they kind of like, you know, it's something that weren't seems, interested. It seems they like. act very uninterested. They're just like, oh, you know, it's just a place where he get, you know, where it's quiet for him to work. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's like they write about it in the report. Like it's just a little weird quirk about Huang. <laughs> it's like this seems seriously sus as fuck. Why not? I, I think it's very this. clearly one of the more important things actually. Yeah, I know. So well, anyway, let's get into some of the stuff they actually did look into. Right. So, and as you know, the election season start to pick up this 94 to 96 period, there's midterms and there's then the coming reelection campaign. Um, Huang starts soliciting contributions to the DNC while he's still at the Commerce Department, which is illegal. And mm -hmm. then he basically, uh, all these people at the DNC start to be lobbied to hire Huang directly. And one of these people is uh, jo C. Joseph Girard, who's the former head of the Rose Law Firm you mentioned earlier. Yep. By this point, he's one of the main business partners of the Riyadis in the United <laughs> States. Yeah. <laughs> totally mental. And he's he's one of the main people that starts lobbying the DNC to hire Huang, basically after he donates like several grand um, like to the DNC. And then he's like, you should hire Huang. And then also lobbying for Huang to be hired at the DNC was Mark Middleton at that point in time. So 
at some point in this period to period, Middleton and, and Huang are already linked up and Huang and Riyadi start to meet each other really frequently. Um, I think in the same period that we're talking about here, it's 95 times. So way more mm-hmm. than the amount of times he met with Epstein. I mean, That's obviously crazy. they're meeting like probably a couple times a week. Uh, or something like that, or once a week, or something like that. I guess this is a little longer span than than Epstein's uh, time visiting. And at the same time, James Riotti is also meeting with Middleton, uh, but it, that's twenty visits. And um, some of, some of these visits were Huang and Riotti together meeting with Middleton. Uh, and on a couple of occasions, Riotti was meeting directly with with Clinton, and Huang accompanied him. And there's not a lot is known about those meetings, um, including the ones with Middleton. Allegedly, from what we do know and what Congress gathered, it was related to China trade issues and granting China MFN status or most favored trade, uh, most favored nation trading status. And this seems to be one of the main potential reasons behind "quote unquote" Riyadi Gate, mm-hmm. um, because Clinton had originally campaigned uh, that he was going to uh, oppose MFN status for China uh, over its human rights record, right? And then he reverses his stance on that and then a year later in 1994 delinks mfm status from china's human rights record yeah and i you know i don't think this was something we really got into into the book that much but there were some changes in kind of the geopolitical situation that were happening yeah. kind of simultaneous to this where the u.s has always kind of had a very kind of like pro-taiwan perspective but this sudden kind of realignment took place at a time when China and Taiwan were like increasing their uh, trade relations and there was yeah. kind of like a realignment that was kind of taking place in this post-Cold War totally. moment. So when you're looking at Riyadi Gate, you see Indonesia, you see Taiwan, you see Singapore, and you see China. And those are like the main countries that that come up in this thing over and over again. So it's definitely... Again, a misnomer to call it China Gate because you have a lot of Taiwan stuff going on. And actually, the most controversial part about it, as far as Middleton's concerned, involves the KMT in Taiwan, not yeah, China. Absolutely. You know? So, anyway, so basically, Mark Middleton has to leave the White House in February 1995. It's not exactly clear why he has to leave, though, it is worth noting that Epstein's last meeting with Middleton it was just a couple weeks before he left the White House. Mm. Um, so, um, not that long, um, after he leaves the white house, Middleton returns to the white house with James Riotti to meet with Clinton. And then the next day Middleton is hired by this company that's basically like run controlled by Lippo, the Riottis again, mm-hmm. and they hire Middleton yeah, more so- specifically. It's this company called Arkansas international development corporation. And then they make a counterpart in the Cayman islands. That's called Arkansas international development corporation two. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I that's the that. one. <laughs> yeah. And that's the one that hires Middleton and they're paying him like almost 13 grand a month, which is I, a lot of money. I, yeah, that is a lot. Time. I I went and I tried to find like any kind of records about what kind of business they did. And usually like, you know, in the documents that, you know, we were looking at, it talked about how it was mainly about gaining influence by hiring people with access to the Clinton administration. Yeah. Uh, But then like a lot of press releases kind of talk about how it's about promoting business development in Asia. But the only concrete thing I could find was like, the Arkansas International Development Corporation arranged for a Walmart to open in Indonesia. 
Um, so, you know, it's just... Yeah, it seems like something else was going on because Middleton's supposed to be on the reality payroll. What he's supposed to be doing is looking for all these joint venture opportunities yeah. for, for the Lippo group. And he doesn't produce anything. And he he's on their payroll for like several years. And he's paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars to do basically nothing. Yeah, he travels well, a lot. Based well, on yeah, that. but that's if you believe what he's su supposed to be officially doing in that period, you know. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah. just the fact that that's like a shadow company that's owned in the Caymans is, you know, suggested, you know, it, it's suggestive of a pattern. Like when you see that kind of stuff, it's you're usually seeing like some kind of like dark money network that's being formed. So, you know, there's some really weird meetings that Middleton does in this period. There's one where he's like, you know, he travels through Asia all the time. And on some of these occasions that come up in the congressional reports, he's like described as holding court. Uh, oh. like in a hotel room, like it's a two room hotel room. It's like a suite. Right. And then there's this waiting room and it's just full of like influential Asian businessmen. And they're all coming in to meet with Mark Middleton one by one. And no one knows why, oh. because one thing I should point out about this congressional investigation is that like hardly anyone cooperated with it, including people they subpoenaed. And mm -hmm. it, it, like Mark Middleton's a good example. He had to testify in front of Congress, but he pleaded the fifth 28 times, including when he was asked, are you an agent of a foreign government? <laughs> it is really annoying to read like a lot of the transcripts. You can't read Middleton's like, testimony because he's just like, no, sir, can't say it, yeah. sir. Sorry, sir. Plead the fifth. Burr, burr, burr. You know, oh, it's the awful. Whole. Yeah. yeah. Or it's just, <laughs> I, you know, you just read like you read Huang and it's just like him saying like, oh, I don't know. For, you know, hundreds of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all they're all pretty much like that, except I think Johnny Chung that has a really insane story with Hillary Clinton that I hope we have time for <laughs> today. Because yeah. it's it's just so unbelievable. Um but <laughs> just nuts. Um anyway, so um why Middleton's doing all of this and holding court for the Riyadis and basically engaged in this weird influence operation. Uh, he's maintaining a voicemail in a, at, at the white house, hands out business cards. Like he's still working at the white house and all of this stuff. And maybe he did have weird continued ties after he was not officially working there um, at the time. And so eventually um, in this, or after Middleton's hired there a couple months later, um, there's this meeting and then Huang is hired by the DNC and given this title that didn't exist previously, they like create a position for him. Yeah. And it, he becomes DNC's vice finance chairman all of a sudden. And then he gets involved in all of this really, um, shady stuff, um, for, for the, you know, the, the, the financing of the 1996 campaign. And basically a lot of what the stuff is, is sort of like what he had done in the, in the 92 election mm -hmm. um, for fundraising. Like, you know, and this is what Charlie tree and a lot of these other guys in, in this network, um, you know, were doing, they would use like front companies to funnel money to the DNC, or they would go um, to people that were like U S citizens, maybe like Chinese or Taiwanese, but had U S citizenship or U S residency could like legally contribute. And yeah. then they would say, okay, donate X amount of money to the DNC. And then it would be reimbursed by someone that was not a U S citizen. Right. And, and, you know, Huang had the Riyadis behind him. Charlie tree had Riyadi connections, but was tied up with another yeah. guy that we'll get into a second name. Inglap Singh, I think is how you say his name. Um, yeah. I, I went down a huge rabbit hole on how to pronounce this name. <laughs> I just figured I'd wing it because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not probably ever going to do it right. And I have bronchitis. So, I mean, I was, I was extra screwed. 
you, you pronounced it proper from a Cantonese perspective. <laughs> I'm so glad to know that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> all, all right. So um, one thing that's important to bring up here um, that we didn't get into previously, um, and this is part of why I think it ended up be, being called China Gate, is because that the the realities basically in the early 90s as Clinton was becoming president also became business partners, you know, not just of Jackson Stevens and people like that, but also basically of the Chinese government. <laughs> so um, this has to do with their BCCI, like the attempt. To yeah, rescue. yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about or I can talk about it? I, I can talk about it. Um, there, there's not too much information about it, but. It was when BCCI was being liquidated, kind of, you know, it had branches all over the world and other companies would, you know, try to buy up their assets and their banks. And the BCCI Hong Kong branch was put up for sale. And this was kind of like a pretty significant uh, branch for this bank because this was the, you know, kind of major bank that was used by the Chinese government, particularly in like weapon sales. And, you know, this was like a kind of like starting in the 70s, the Chinese government kind of made, you know, it had its generalized kind of push towards like an export oriented model of economic growth. And their weapon cells on a global scale were a major part of like this export. And a lot of that was handled through this BCCI Hong Kong branch. So as the bank was being liquidated, that branch goes up for sale. And lo and behold, the Riyadis through Lippo Group are interested in purchasing it. And what they do is that they end up kind of partnering with a company you know, uh, called China Resources. And China Resources is kind of this, it's this uh, trading company that's run by the Chinese government. And it's described as the agent for all of the People's Republic of China's foreign trade corporations. So it's kind of like a major hub. And the way that this would work is that you know, they would partner, but China Resources would kind of do all the financing of the deal. And in the end, it ended up kind of falling apart. You know, the uh, BCCI Hong Kong kind of like went into like full-blown collapse, wasn't purchased. But the Riyadis kind of stayed very close with China Resources to the point where uh, the Riyadis had a bank called the Hong Kong Chinese Bank. And China Resources like purchased... Uh, I think it's like 15% of it. And then, you know, like in 93, they increased it to like 50%. So the Riyadis and this like chief trading entity for the Chinese government were like basically involved in this very kind of like large- It became scale. like a joint venture basically at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just that it was like a trading corporation, but China Resources was, you know, identified- as basically a front, not just for like the Chinese government, but for like the People's Liberation Army and, you know, involvement in espionage um, and like military activity. And so you can kind of see it not just as like a joint venture with the Chinese government, but really it's a joint venture with the Chinese military and intelligence apparatus. Yeah. And, and so it's worth pointing out really quickly, BCCI HK, the Hong Kong one, um, mm -hmm. the Hong Kong branch, very involved with ch basically China's military industrial complex right. uh, to a huge degree, which was involved with arming uh, Iran and Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. Um and, uh, you know, some of those companies, companies like Norinco, uh, as is mentioned in the book, have uh, very intimate ties with 
Jeffrey Epstein's mentor in the 1980s, Douglas Lease. Um, so anyway, just leave that there for people to chew on for a second. <laughs> so, um, but this whole military angle comes up a lot in quote unquote, China gate, Riyadi gate, uh, because one of the few, um, you know, people that were central to this that did cooperate with the investigation, pretty much the only one I think is Johnny Chung. Um, he basically said that he was courted by someone, um, uh, the daughter of a famous Chinese general who was in charge of another company that was sort of flagged as a, as a front for the, for the Chinese army um, to, to basically, you know, launder money from Chinese military intelligence and send it to the DNC. Um and, and so that's pretty mental. And so that's a totally another person. That's not Johnny Huang, right? But Johnny Huang basically um, does, you know, in acting as the Riyadi's man on the inside, he basically does a lot of the same stuff. So, for example, he uh, connects China resources to the Commerce Department, uh, lobbies Ron Brown to meet with the chairman of China resources, Right. Um, and manages the visit of China Resources Chairman, who's a Shin Jurin, I think is how you say it. Maybe that's wrong. Anyway, uh, he he manages, uh, you know, the, um, their visit and uh, arranges a meeting between them and, and Al Gore and stuff and is like very involved. So obviously, you know, they're in a joint venture with the Riyadis. Huang is the Riyadis men on the inside. And he's also like as part of that helping advance the interests of this China resources company that's tied to, you know, military intelligence of China. So that's complicated. And there's a lot of stuff going on here, even beyond that, like there's these weird fundraisers that were being held in Asia on behalf of the DNC and Huang and Charlie tree um, both did that to a significant degree. And they'll have like a lot that they'd invite like a lot of powerful businessmen, none of whom, Often, maybe you'd have a hand, a splat, you know, a couple citizens, but the majority would not be in, in some cases, none at all. And there were, you know, witnesses that they were being lobbied to contribute to the Clinton campaign um, and things like that. And actually one of uh, at one of these fundraisers, one of it, this was in Taiwan, I think, or at least a lot of the businessmen were Taiwanese. And one of them had actually been caught for laundering campaign funds to uh, city council candidates in Los Angeles. Is like, this the Pacific Leadership Council, or is this a different uh, no, no, no? That's that's before. So this was oh, okay. a meeting at the Jefferson Hotel in '96 that Huang oh, no. had had right. arranged. Yeah, um, but it's interesting because you know some of these guys that are non-citizens had previously been flagged for laundering campaign funds like into U.S. elections previous to this. So it's that's the, the reason I, I bring it up. And then there's another one uh, directly involving Riyadi. Okay. And it's at a fundraiser hosted by Lou Wasserman, who is the guy that comes up in the book a lot. If you're familiar with the Epstein flight logs, you will know that there is also a Wasserman on Epstein's flight logs. That would be the grandson of Lou Wasserman. Yeah. Um, yeah so anyway, that's also in the book, but um, Lou old Wasserman. Old school mob. Yeah, totally. Uh, and like you mentioned, Jackson Stevens having ties to, Carter, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Lou mm -hmm. Wasserman is that too. Lou Wasserman, uh, Jimmy Carter said the first person he called outside of Georgia when he planned to run for president was Lou Wasserman and like ask his blessing. Lou Wasserman is basically the man that made Ronald Reagan's political career, a major donor to Bush Sr. and also a big financer of uh, Clinton uh, as well. So, you know, when you, yeah. you want to talk about powerful businessmen, with organized crime and intelligence ties who were behind the scenes and scenes and like 
political kingmakers. You know, Lou Wasserman and Jackson Stevens were on that on that tier for sure. Yeah, and it's just like a fun little factoid. Um, fun in quotes. Uh, yeah, like Lou, Lou, Lou Wasserman, you know, he was the guy behind MCA, like the big music and like acting. Uh, you know, it's a big Universal Studios now. Yeah, yeah. This is like the mob penetration of Hollywood. Uh, sponsored the career of Ronald Reagan and Fool. But apparently Danny Casolera, like doing use the term the octopus, he had gotten that from another book. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but the term was being used to actually describe the MCA, MCA and its like relation to organized crime. Yeah, well, MCA was being probed for its ties to organized crime in the 80s. It was quashed by the Reagan administration, obviously as a favor to Wasserman, who basically owned Reagan. And um, they're also MCA, also executives of MCA pop up in the Promise software scandal several yeah. times. Um, and if you read Sherry Seymour's book on the on the subject, uh, you'll have a much clearer understanding of where MCA fits in that picture. All right. For so sure, in the interest sure. of time, is there anything else you want to add on Huang before we jump to Charlie um, Tree? I think we hit all the like really important things. I can't can't think of anything. Okay, right on. So we talked about Huang, and it's pretty obvious there that something was really rotten <laughs> uh, with that. So here's the other guy we've mentioned a couple times, Charlie Tree. That's not his real name. It was Yalin Tree. Um, but, he, you know, he had, um, he came to Little Little Rock from Taiwan, though it doesn't appear that he was born in Taiwan. It appears he was born in China and then immigrated to Taiwan when he was a teen. But anyway, he comes to the U.S. in 1976. He goes to Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, his sister's there, and they they co-own a restaurant together. Um, and Clinton ended up frequenting this restaurant when he was governor. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because Tree was donating uh, to him even before he became a citizen um, as early as 1982. You know, between 1982 and the end of the 80s, um, the two end up becoming close somehow. And Tree starts calling uh, Clinton like big boss in yeah. uh, Mandarin or Cantonese. I'm not sure exactly which dialect it is. Like but... Wow, K. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it uh, that apparently trans translates into big boss, which is just, you know, uh, very shady sounding. Yeah. Shady yeah. sounding, that's for sure. I mean, all I could really do was sigh about it, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, in 1996, this controversial campaign financing thing, you know, Clinton is on video actually calling, referring to Tree as his close friend of over two decades and stuff. And Tree actually has ties, of course, to who else? The Riottis going back to the same period of time, basically, um, around 1983 or so. He becomes friends with a Lippo executive called Antonio Pan. Antonio is not <laughs> his real first name. It's like the first name that he chose when he came to the U.S. I forget um, what his actual first name is. But he was executive vice president of um, the Riotti family's uh, Lippo Group, their Chinese subsidiary called the Tati Group. So uh, they became pretty close. And at some point, uh, the Riottis extended Tree a significant loan in 1985 that is reportedly for Tree to, quote, expand his restaurant operations. Yeah. And that, that's <laughs> like $60,000. 60, yeah. 60000 in 1985 is a lot of money. I know. <laughs> like, from what I mean, it wasn't like that big. Like, you know, that, that that's more money, I think, than his restaurant would really require. So I think it's pretty clear that something else is going going on there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a couple of years later, it, around the time when um, China Resources and the Riotti family are coming together and BCCI, Hong Kong's collapsing and 
all this stuff is going on. Tree sells his, uh, his restaurant and he tries to create this import export business, uh, but specifically focusing on US China trade called Daihatsu International Trading Corp. And the congressional investigation and Senate investigation into this basically found that Daihatsu never did any business ever, but it was, of course, involved in donating to the DNC, even though it didn't do business. Um, and during the same period, he was making a lot of, uh, Tree was making a lot of trips to China between China and the U.S., bringing Chinese businessmen and mm -hmm. officials uh, to the United States, specifically to Arkansas. And this is all, you know, even before Clinton is in the White House. And obviously, once he's in the White House, it picks up a lot. But a lot of Tree's activities in this period are intimately tied up with this guy named Ing Lap Singh, who we mentioned right. earlier, who is from Macau and has a very bizarre rag-to-riches story that makes no sense. He's apparently born into dire poverty, so poor he can't even feed himself, but he also somehow manages to bribe his way into Macau. Um, so I don't know how he did that with no money, but he did. And then he becomes a wealthy businessman once in Macau, uh, apparently just by selling um, fabric to people. Um, that makes sense. Um, of course. You know, yeah. In like five years, he becomes like a, <laughs> a multimillionaire by selling like uh, fabric and he comes in with no money. I mean, none of it really makes any sense, to be honest. So, you know, a lot of these stories exist. There's a lot of them in the book for very, you know, a lot of different people. Um, and in my opinion, when there is a person who has an improbable rags to riches story, a lot of times there's organized crime or other sort of unsavory yeah. alliances that are responsible for the rise to riches and not necessarily the uh, hard work of, of the person that we're talking about. So yeah. I think that's pretty true for Inglap Singh. Yeah, um, he like, um, there's a lot of reports about like alleged like ties to triad gangs. And so that's definitely like your um, kind of organized crime side. Uh, lots of allegations yeah. that he was himself like a Chinese intelligence agent. Uh, he was absolutely like close to like the leadership of the communist party of China in this time period. Yeah. Uh, and he would kind of fall as the second generation of what were called like the red fat cats, which were like, or the very... red princes or princelings. They have yeah. a lot of different nicknames depending on, on who um, yeah. is talking about them. Yeah. The red fat cats was the term used in Macau proper, I think. Right. So to define that for people that don't know, this, these are basically more often than not like family members, like children of people that were sort of like the founders or top leaders of China's Communist Party. And so they get sort of these cushy jobs in, in these state owned conglomerates or businesses. And a lot of them were not very communist in their dealings. One of the guys that gets talked about a lot in the chapter, um, chapter 17 um, of the book was basically disowned by his father, who was a very prominent member of the Communist Party for being too capitalist. And that guy was like hoarding a bunch of money in um, offshore accounts and doing, you know, the same shady business activities that a lot of the other people <laughs> that we talk about in the book are doing, you know. So it's it's just business as usual um, for, for you know, the, the red fat cats or whatever. Yeah. And I think that that also helps kind of draw out why Macau is so important because, because it was like simultaneously this like completely unregulated zone, but it was yeah. so close to China is that Macau is where a lot of these, uh, you know, kind of elite figures in China were kind of putting the money that they weren't necessarily supposed to, you know, right. be accumulating. So, so Inglap Singh, once he's a rich guy, he he's very involved in real estate and he owns like hotels and stuff that I think also were like casino-y stuff to an extent. Uh, it, the places 
that he owns are allegedly, again, associated with triad gangsters. Um, and he, you know, in this period of time, he starts connecting with Tree. His first known association with Tree is this effort to acquire a hotel in Little Rock, uh, Arkansas, um, that I think actually involves uh, C. Joseph Girard, right? Yep, yeah. Um, <laughs> of all people, you know, the Riotti guy again. So the Riottis are in the mix, but Inklap Singh is interesting because he has this direct tie to the top Chinese leadership. He's uh, allegedly affiliated with organized crime. And that came up when he was trying to acquire this hotel, even that he had a criminal ties in Asia uh, was what they said. But one of these hotels was advertised as a massage table dance karaoke spot. Okay. Yeah. So in Macau, that's basically, um, especially because of the alleged organized crime influence, it's most likely like a low key brothel. Um, Macau was very well known, especially in this period, for having been a hotbed for sex trafficking. And it was basically de facto legal, de facto legal to have brothels if it was disguised as a massage parlor. And that's actually very common in parts of Asia even today. Um, actually, Ed and I were talking a little bit before recorded and i mentioned that when i was in college i uh, i went to malaysia uh for a month with my my major advisor uh to do some research um on, on stuff there and we were gonna go to we were like walking down the street and we looked inside one of these like massage parlors quote unquote and it was like the women were like all staring out the window they were all wearing like matching pajamas with like zip down like all the way down i mean it was just very odd wow. you know and also karaoke we went to a karaoke bar thinking it would be like fun you know <laughs> yeah. and it turns out that like you can't go up and sing karaoke if you want like we wanted to go goof off and stuff but you're not even it's like these women come up and they sing karaoke and then they're handed flowers with a wad of cash inside and then whoever gave them the cash follows them like down this hallway and you oh, don't see where they go right and so i don't know how common that is you know in macau during this period um but this was like on a on a sort of um a, a, a place called Penang in Malaysia, which is like, you know, mostly ethnic Chinese. So maybe it it is what they do in Macau also. That's just my personal experience. I've never been to China, so I don't know. But I mean, you know, shady hotel with organized crime ties, massage table, dance, karaoke spot in a place that's known for lack of regulation about all sorts of things, including sex trafficking. It's a little alarming. Now, um, is this the same hotel that Stanley Ho was involved with, uh, no, no, but this is this is Inglap Singh's like yeah. flagship hotel. Oh, another thing I forgot. Uh, their main pamphlet for this hotel that he he ran specifically promoted attractive and attentive hostesses from um, China, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Burma, together with erotic girls from Europe and Russia, certainly offer you an exciting and unforgettable evening with friends or business associates. So, I mean, it's not, it's not looking good, not looking good in saying, I think we're on to you. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So anyway, that's the guy that tree teamed up with. Uh, those are his connections. I think it's a little bit relevant. Um, and so basically tree is basically to summarize it. Cause we don't have that much time. He, he's basically acting as a front for Inglap Singh. And if you read the congressional or Senate reports, it's very clear that's what happened. Tree basically found all these different ways to break up huge sums of money that Inglap Singh was wiring him. 
he tried to shuffle it through all these different bank accounts and then filter it to the DNC through all these different ways. But it's very obvious that it all came from Inglap Singh. So he's basically acting as a front for Inglap Singh um, at the end of the day. And a lot of, you know, where does Mark Middleton fit in here? Okay, so Mark Middleton is going to these parties um, that um, are being hosted at this office at the Watergate complex that Inglap Singh uses but it's it's apparently owned in in the office of this Daihatsu company that Tree runs but it's being used by Inglap Singh and his bookkeeper um and then Antonio Pan this former Lippo Group executive who is now claiming to be CEO of the Daihatsu company that never does any business ever and so Mark Middleton and some of these guys from also where else the commerce department are going to these weird parties at the Watergate apartment not going to uh speculate about what may have happened there, but there are some other um, things that are notice notable about Inglap Singh. And I guess uh, a lot of these would be that when Inglap Inglap Singh makes his visits to the U S and during this period of time, they're almost always uh, in, aimed at him going to the white house and he goes to the white house, but he'll come into the country with like a ton of cash on him. And, 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 you know, in a couple days he apparently spends it all and it's, it seems to me the way it's written and like it's laid out in the documentation, he's he's basically like giving it to Mark Middleton. Like he comes into the U.S. Uh, with a ton of cash and then he meets Mark Middleton and then he leaves, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and he meets like, Ron Brown a lot too in this period. Yeah, yeah. So it's either going to Middleton or Brown. Uh, they're both equally corrupt. So yeah. I mean, you, it's anyone's guess at this point. And then tree gets appointed to this fancy board of finance board of directors at the DNC, which includes people like, um, Edgar Bronfman, of course, who comes up a lot in the book and is, you know, sort of affiliated with the Lou Wasserman side of things, yep. um, to significant degrees. Uh, and then tree gets involved with, this is another rabbit hole, so I'm not going to get into it too much, but he basically bring, brings China's premier arms dealer to meet with Clinton and something that became really controversial. But what wasn't reported really in the media reports about it at the time is that this meeting that Tree set up for this arms dealer, whose name is Wang Jun, um, basically scuttled what would have, what actually was, even though it was, uh, you know, mess, totally messed with, um, it, the biggest like ATF confiscation of automatic weapons uh, that were being smuggled in the U.S. ever, um, right. and and basically you know Wang Wang Jun's companies were smuggling illegal Chinese weapons into the United States because as part of that aforementioned most favored traded uh, most favored nation trading status deal um, that was being lobbied for by the Riyadis and all of this Clinton banned. Uh, Chinese weapons were being sold in the U.S., but they were still smuggling them to a significant degree. And someone at the White House, after this meeting with Wang Jun that Charlie Tree set up, basically tips everyone off that's being investigated that's going to happen. And all the big people they were after, including Wang Jun's uh, operator of U.S., all his U.S. operations, and managed to escape. And so only like the little guys are are nabbed for it, but it's still, they still get like a, an insane amount of automatic weapons. And these autom automatic weapons were going to like, basically we're fueling gang violence um, at the height of all of that stuff going on in the 1990s, like the East versus West, you know, gang battles and all of this stuff that, you know, is urban, you know, a lot of people in the U S I think know about it at this point. Cause it was such a big part of, you know, culture at the time. Yeah, I was, you know, I was say, a like... little kid and I even knew about it. So 
yeah, like even like movies from that time, like you'll, you know, any representation you'll see, they'll have like Chinese like uh, automatic weapons. And the, the scale of it was like really large because if you read a lot of the, you know, the few documents that exist, you know, concerning that, they, they talk about how China, like it was still enough for them to like get significant revenue streams off selling it to US street gangs. You know, it's yeah. still like, it wasn't like little, you know, these aren't like small time arms deals. These are still kind of like large weapons packages in a lot of ways. Uh, so definitely, yeah. definitely more to find in that direction too, I think. Oh, totally. And you know what? I tried to get in touch with this lawyer that we, <laughs> that, that we talked about a yeah. couple weeks ago and like, he was going to talk to me and now he like, doesn't want to talk to me about the China stuff. I, I oh, have no really? idea what happened, but damn, that's he's really hoping to find out the name of these offshore companies or they were doing all this stuff, but I guess I won't now. Uh, anyway, I was just wondering about that. that. That's disappointing. Well, maybe you can try. I'll give him, <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe he, I'll you know, you're I'll give, I'll less give infamous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. So anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, so, at, you know, after this meeting with Wang Jun and all of that, which is a very separate thing, and I've mentioned this in some other interviews, because I think that sort of is is what explains Epstein and Middleton's mm -hmm. relationship at the White House is related to a lot of this Chinese weapon stuff because of um, numerous things. I mean, it all sort of clicks together different parts of the book in that chapter, and that's way too complex to get into for now, so, you know, we're just trying to focus on Mark Middleton and, and Riyadi Gate and whatever, right? Of course, so, yeah. Um, so, you know, after that meeting, Tree is going to a big fundraiser that's supposed to be the top African-American fundraiser in D.C. It's basically headed by Ron Brown, who is an African-American, I think, at the time was like the only person in the cabinet that was African, or at least one of them. I don't, I can't remember exactly. Um but uh, he brings like a what was described as a boatload of, um, I guess, Chinese, Chinese and Taiwanese people with him. And basically Clinton and Ron Brown are on video talking about like uh, that they know that this is they call them the tree team, like the tree Charlie team. tree team. Yeah. And, you know, they, they like know that there's these non-citizens coming to all these fundraisers and are obviously like cool with it. So, um, and, and again, that was like the main focus of this investigation was the illegality of the finance contributions, but very little interest in looking into what those, um, you know, uh, what those finances were enabling. Mm -hmm. And Mark Middleton was at the at the center of all of these meetings, ultimately. So the question becomes, you know, what did the Riyadis want, basically, because the two main guys here... Um, aside from Johnny Chung, who I don't think we have time to get to today. Um, but they're basically, you know, have Riyadi ties, significant, significant Riyadi ties and are part of the same, you know, network, you know, around involved with like Macau banking and like money laundering mm -hmm. and BCCI and all of this stuff. So Middleton was in the center of, of this insane swamp. So it's really no coincidence that you see George W. Bush, you know, the, the son of George Bush senior step in right. to cover this up. And that's how you know that this is, there's a lot more to the scandal here for sure. Um, you also, I totally forgot to mention this. One of Charlie trees top guy, like conspirators alongside Mark Middleton is a top banker at Lehman brothers. Who's this yeah. guy named Ernie green. So you also have wall street 
pretty directly in the mix here. And there's this weird stuff that they were, that Tree and, and Ernie Green were obviously doing. They claimed to like come together in this, it's so funny to me, this joint venture around self-inflating novelty balloons. Um, so I'm Sometimes sure that wasn't just, a front yeah, for anything. I just find it weird. <laughs> like it, that's like a thing that comes up like time and time again, when you're looking at this stuff, you'll just come across like, yeah, a self-inflating novelty balloon. You know, that's not like what it's about, you know, just, <laughs> no. like, you know, like I, I was looking at this thing with like Adnan Khashoggi last night and around 1986, he was trying to sell shares to what he claimed was um, King Solomon's mine. He said that he had found it. Just, you know, uh. like, these people love to just like do weird shit, you know? Yeah, they like love to have silly griffs that like are amusing to them. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know. I, I That's what I assume it is. So anyway, um, so Middleton and Green are working with Tree really extensively. And at the same time, Middleton's also working extensively with Johnny Huang and all of this weird stuff, right? And <laughs> they, Green and Middleton both tried to get involved in this real estate project that Tree and Inglap uh, Singh um, were really trying to promote during this period of time. And it was co-owned by Inglap Singh with the Ho brothers of Macau. Mm -hmm. And that's the aforementioned, who you brought up a second ago, Stanley Ho um, being one of those brothers. And it, I mean, it's documented the ties of the Ho family to organized crime in China. That is, or Macau. It's very much like Ying himself, where, you know, on the one hand, they have these like, yeah, ties to triads, organized crime, very extensive well-documented yeah. deep but on the other hand it was like you know he was served on like the china's like committee of the you know uh the top advisory council to the communist party itself yeah. so he's another one of these like red fat cat types and one thing that's like really interesting i thought is you know back at the beginning when we talked about this macau bank that jackson stevens and the riyadi spot that sing hang bank yeah. In 1986 or 87, they sold it to Stanley Ho. So, like, yeah. they have relations to him going back to the 1980s, you know, predating all of this stuff. And so yeah. uh, it's indicative of, like, a pretty consistent totally. Pattern. And yeah. And Stanley Ho is, like, so obviously tied to organized crime, they don't even let him set up casinos or his children set up casinos in the U.S. Yeah. Or be business yeah. <laughs> partners in casinos in the U.S. Like... They don't want their money so bad because they know how dirty they are that it will be very bad press for them, like, immediately. <laughs> like, well, he, he descends from the family, like, that was tied up with uh, Jardine Matheson, which was, like, the yeah, British yeah. company that dominated Hong Kong. That. Yeah, but yeah. Jardine Matheson was, like, a, a British trading company that, for a while, kind of competed with the East India Company. But then over time, it all kind of started to integrate. And yeah, so it the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was controlled by what's called the Keswick family. And, you know, when we talk about like the opium wars or just like the general opium trade in Asia, like the Keswicks through Jardine Matheson really were like the controlling body for this. And actually ends up being like quite important during World War II. Um, the Keswicks were key parts of what was called the special operations executive this was like british intelligence in world war ii yeah, yeah. and they provided a lot of the documents that would like to william donovan that would be necessary to set up the oss so jardine matheson actually has like a really fundamental connection to the basis of american intelligence itself and so like uh, the ho family descends from like uh people who were like high executives in this so it's just like a long family history of shady ties and underworld ties 
you know, kind of coexisting together. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, basically to sum up, I mean, this is the network that's around Mark Middleton at the time the scandal's going on and when he's meeting with Epstein, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really one thing that really surprised me when I find it finally got into the, you know, the work of of researching this book that was, you know, supposed to be just mainly about Epstein, um, is that Epstein has a lot of ties to the East that don't get reported on really at at all, um, specifically like Chinese weapons manufacturers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was really, you know, one of the missing pieces in the puzzle when discussing um, his involvement in, you know, on behalf of Leslie Wexner getting Southern air transport, the Iran Contra um, airline of infamy uh, relocated to go uh, instead of, you know, focusing on flights between Latin America and the U S because, you know, they were drug smuggling in the Iran Contra era. Um, it's relocated from going from Columbus, Ohio to Hong Kong and mm-hmm. back. And what were they smuggling? Why is he meeting with Mark Middleton? Da-da-da-da-da. Well, we, we think we figured it out, but there's obviously a lot more, um, to come out about it. And it's worth mentioning too, that, you know, while this is treated as China gate and there was such a big focus on East Asia stuff, mm-hmm. um, it, it's also very important to point out that there was also a lot of other people involved with, I guess what I would call the Robert Maxwell mafia, perhaps um, you have people like uh, Gregory Lachansky, who's yep. like linked to organized crime, Mark Rich, and also the Maxwell siblings, uh, the sons, Ian and Kevin end up working for him. He's being courted by a guy who's very tied up with the sort of whole mega group group and people like Steven Spielberg. He's trying, you know, Sam Dom, Sam Dom, who, yeah. knew, who knew Maxwell personally. Right. And he's basically trying to take these organized crime people like, you know, into the DNC network as well at the same time. So you're having sort of these Chinese military connected organized crime guys in, in China and Macau and whatever, um, in, in the BCCI crowd, the Riyadis getting into the DNC in, in really shady ways and, and buying influence and obviously targeting, you know, more than anything else, the commerce department. And at the same time, uh, you have the people in the, in the Robert Maxwell network, Epstein being one of them. Yeah. Just one of them, I should point out, that are that are also involved with the same stuff at the end of the day. So there is like a huge scandal here. And, we, you know, I think in the book, we only really ended up like scratching the surface yeah. of it. There's a lot more. And, you know, at some point, I'd really like to f- find out what the heck was going on because it's nuts. And I guess the part we should end here is, uh, you know, what ended up happening to Mr. Ron Brown, uh, because Ron Brown was the target of most of this um, influence operation, these influence operations um, that came up in, in, in the scandal in which Mark Middleton himself was embroiled. And he met a very grisly end mm-hmm. um, in April 1996. Uh, and I've talked about this in some previous interviews as well, but he was on, um, he was going to cooperate as part of an investigation that was uh, threatened to unravel a lot of more than what we've covered today, but about the same network specifically, and then was unexpectedly asked to uh, host a trade mission to Croatia and en route to there, uh, the plane he is on crashes. And the the cause of the crash was attributed uh, to failure of command and an improperly designed uh, instrument approach procedure, whatever that means. And they blamed that on a 1930s era navigational system. But then a couple days later, the head of navigation at the airport 
where they were supposed to land was found dead, a uh, shot in the chest. And uh, he was, that was ruled a suicide. Um, you know, totally normal. Um, and even Clinton himself talking about the tragedy was like, oh, uh, this was a peculiar, peculiar mix of circumstances. If only one <laughs> or two things had happened differently, the crash might not have happened at all. You know, one or two things happening differently, maybe having been Ron Brown not agreeing to cooperate with investigators. That's just my opinion, though. So anyway, what's crazy about this is that a lot of people do know that like Ron Brown his body when it was discovered it was very suspect but there were 34 people who died on that plane yep and a lot of them were people that worked alongside john juan at the ita i think almost all of them his direct boss yeah his boss at the ita was there and a lot of other people most of the other people on the plane were also specifically part of the ita that johnny huang was was at and to me that's really telling because it's not just about ron brown that to me says Johnny Huang at the ITA was engaged in a lot of stuff. And I think that Arkansas system stuff with China's central bank, you know, mm -hmm. might be part of it because of yeah. all these weird security clearances and all of this stuff. And that's why it's so mind boggling to me that the congressional investigations into this, they don't really bring up the Ron Brown crash at all. They it's don't. like a separate thing. And, and, and the fact, the coincidental fact that all these people at the ITA get killed, uh, when Johnny Huang is doing this weird stuff with Stevens Inc. and these security clearances and whatever at the ITA. And, and like we mentioned earlier, they weren't really interested in looking into that at all. And all these people just conveniently end up dead the second that Ron Brown's like, yeah, I'll, okay, I'll cooperate. Um, and so, you know, basically he had this bullet wound in his head. Mm -hmm. and, and we point out in the book the details for that, yeah. Um, it was a 45... It was described by an army medical examiner as a 45 inwardly beveling circular hole in the top of his head, which is essentially the description of a 45 caliber gunshot wound. And inwardly yeah. beveling, that means like the inside of the wound is bigger than the outside, which is why it's consistent with, you know, kind of the way a bullet kind of goes. Yeah, it, it was pretty much widely recognized that it wasn't caused by the crash. And I think at the time you had like Maxine Waters in Congress asking for like more information about anomalies and Ron Brown's autopsy and all this stuff, which they obviously didn't want to deal with. Um, yeah. So there was no subsequent aut uh, autopsy. It was pretty much, uh, you know. Yeah, that, that's significant because one of the medical examiners disagreed that it was a bullet hole strictly based on the fact that there was no exit wound. But that's like, you know, that's not uncommon to not have an exit wound and an autopsy would show like, you know, would recover that bullet. But there were like no autopsies done. And I believe that he was cremated like very quickly uh, before the family themselves were notified. Yeah, so... And you found this actually, and I just found it so nuts that not only did you have those people die, but not that a couple months later, you had another person at the Commerce Department die super suspiciously in just found dead in her office. Yeah, Barbara. And she Alice was working Watts. at ITA also. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was weird because at first they were they were treating it as a homicide because like her body apparently had bruises. Yeah, you know, there's conflicting reports on whether or not she was clothed. But then, like by the end of the day, they were like, "Oh no, this was you know natural causes." Natural causes. She has bruises on her body, and I don't know. It's just yeah, okay, natural causes. Just totally mental how they how yeah. they deal with this stuff too. And and earlier in the book, um, before we, I get, in, uh, you know, all this stuff that we've talked about today comes up, we talk about Vince Foster 
And like that whole autopsy thing is to like totally nuts too. So anyway, um, so I mentioned earlier, Brown was going to be a material witness and was going to testify. Yeah. This was actually a suit filed by judicial watch with Tom Fitton. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, the whole thing he was supposed to testify about wasn't exactly about the campaign finance stuff, but it would have led to that same network. Right. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly clear that that's exactly like, because this, the, the judicial watch suit ended up launching kind of like a congressional probe that would have converged directly into the 96 campaign controversy and possibly revealed like larger networks at play in this. Yeah. So do you want to get into that a little bit? Uh, the dynamic, it was a company called dynamic energy and the stuff there is pretty crazy. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Dynamic Energy was owned by this couple named uh, Nora and Eugene Lum. And they were these kind of shady real estate developers from Hawaii that had become involved in, you know, this the DNC's Asian American fundraising activities. Like they started back in like the 1980s and they had met Ron Brown when he was the DNC chairman. So that's kind of where their association like went to. And they set up this thing that was called the um, Asian Pacific Advisory Council, or APAC, not to be confused with the Zionist organization of a similar name, um, during the first Clinton run. And this was like one of these, we were talking earlier about how like Huang and them were kind of like funneling money through these various DNC apparatuses. Yeah. This was one of those. And so Huang and the Lums like crossed paths. This is one of the examples of why this is kind of the same network. Um, and the allegations concerning APAC are identical to the Huang stuff. You know, these allegations of moving illegal uh, campaign contributions from, you know, uh, foreign entities and foreign businesses. There's stories of cash being delivered in, you know, paper bags. Uh, one little connection of APAC that I thought was really interesting was it involved a guy named Charles Chidiak, who was involved in Hawaiian real estate with the Lums. But before that, he had appeared in what was called the Banca del Lavoro scandal, BNL. And this bank was financing both sides of the Iran-Iraq war. And it had lots of ties to like U.S. intelligence, the BCCI once again, to Henry Kissinger. Um, and Chidiak during that scandal had been found to have been like very active with the bank. And he was described as an asset of American intelligence services. So then he turns up, you know, with the lums in the DNC. That's pretty telling, yeah. I think. But so, you know, after Clinton was elected, you know, the first time, they immediately end up running this oil and gas company called Dynamic Energy. And this is despite, like, they never had any previous experience in oil and gas. And the company itself had no oil and gas reserves of its own. And in fact, like, if you look at some of the reporting on it, it's a total mystery where they even got the money to launch it in the first place. Maybe that's uh, why it's dynamic energy where yeah. they're trying to get the energy from is like changing yeah, all the I time. Mean, I they mean, don't honestly, have that's kind of like, that's the thing. They were, these were like very kind of fly by night people. They weren't wealthy. Uh, they were kind of glorified grifters really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one of their like um, early partners was a guy named Stuart Price. Yeah. Who was the mm -hmm. son-in-law of Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell. 
Which is important because around this time is allegedly when Epstein meets up with George Mitchell. Yes. Through his meetings at the White House, most of which are with Middleton. And then, of course, it's it's been alleged since that he was part of the uh, sex trafficking uh, operation. To that, that's made by Virginia Jeffries, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, the, but then the other interesting thing about dynamic energy is not only is it close to you know George Mitchell, but it's like very tight with the Commerce Department itself. Yeah. So like Ron Brown's son, Michael Brown, he was on the board of Dynamic Energy and had a five percent stake in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, the mother of a Commerce Department employee named Melinda Yi, who was very close to Huang. She was on the board as well and also had a similar stake. And then at the same time that this was happening, the Lum's daughter, Trisha Lum, was actually hired into the Commerce Department. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what's happening at the same time that you know all these ties are forming is that the Lums start using dynamic energy to pay out large sums of money to like people associated with the Commerce Department, the you know various politicians, the people in the DNC, and then to also to like really kind of like strange like random businesses, uh, kind of consistent with what we were talking about earlier. Uh, the FBI reported that the Lums were quote unquote facilitators and conduits for payments from private individuals and real estate development to public officials. Which, in other words, it was a money money laundering operation, and it seems to have developed like pretty clever ways to start getting money for these, you know, what seem to be payoffs, right? Um, and one of them involved this contract with a natural gas company called Oklahoma Natural Gas, and Oklahoma Natural Gas was very close to another company called Arcla, which, lo and behold, was controlled by the Stevens family of Stevens Inc. And Mac McLarty, Middleton's boss, was previously the CEO of ARCLA. And so, you know, it's another you know, telling connection there. Uh, look at my notes for a second. Yeah, so um, they're entering into this kind of contract where dynamic energy would provide gas to Oklahoma Natural Gas at a really steep above market price. And so then what Oklahoma Natural Gas would do is to pass this on to the consumers and overbill them. So it's sort of create revenue for dynamic energy. But, you know, there's kind of scamming, you know, the citizens of Oklahoma and Arkansas. And that's really what starts to kick off the probe into like what's going on here exactly. Because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, dynamic energy didn't have any of its own gas reserves. So in order to get them, it starts to try to acquire another company called Gage Corporation. And there was evidence, and this is why Ron Brown was getting kind of roped into it, because there was significant evidence the White House was like kind of guiding this whole thing in in motion to make sure that Gage was acquired. Um, And and apparently Middleton's boss or former boss at the White House, Mac McClarty, was involved mm -hmm. in it, too. So you have like all these people and all these other scandals of the Clinton era like up in here. So obviously, if that if this had been appropriately investigated and yeah, and I'm sure if Ron Brown had cooperated, it would have led to a lot, a lot more unraveling of, you know some some crazy stuff in a pretty you know short period of time so you know um and, and also if i'm not mistaken it just before we wrap up here 
one of the people uh, that was financing this was uh, the Waltons, Alice Walton yeah. through Llama, the Llama Company, mm-hmm. and that's significant. Well, I just want to, I just wanted to bring that up um, because I just wanted to mention um, a little bit about this NGO where Middleton's body was found earlier this year. So Heifer International is a nonprofit. Their funders include Walmart, BlackRock, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, and uh, it's partnered with the Heifer Foundation, and the foundation's board of trustees is chaired by um, the former director of strategy and business development for the Clinton Development Initiative, which is part of the Clinton Foundation. So you have all of these um, interesting players involved with this particular NGO where Middleton's body um, was found hanging from a tree. Um, Just a little weird because more or less most almost all of these people um, with the exception of BlackRock, I guess, but I mean, they own everything and, you know, it's Wall Street. So, you know, well, they're involved the, too with this group in the book, basically. I mean, it's interesting to say well, the very least. Well, one other just like really weird connection, you know, mentioning that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they got financing dynamic to, to buy um, Gage from Llama, like you said, was connected to the Walmart fortunes through Alice Walton. Um What's really funny is that they were actually located in another, they were located in the State Bank of Tulsa building. That's where their headquarters were, which was controlled by a company called Arvest, which was another Alice Walton um, entity. And if you look, if you you know look at news about Mark Middleton, uh, June 28th, 2021, Middleton joined the board of directors of Arvest just a year or so before he died. So... You know. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really. I didn't know that about Middleton. I well, didn't know that until this morning, and so. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm going to have to look into that now. Well, all right. Yeah. So, obviously, that's really crazy because what I had read about Middleton in the in the in recent years is that he was like running an air conditioning business. He was running an air conditioning business, but he seems to have still been kind of circulating in these same networks. In these worlds, yeah. Well, uh-oh. I guess um, the Epstein scandal brought down another another guy. Because honestly, you know, I think w- he's involved with all this stuff. He's involved with these crazy campaign finance scandals and China Gate, the Ron Brown stuff. Ron Brown ends up dead. Mark Middleton doesn't end up dead until 2022. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, why 2022? And I, I don't know. I, my suspicion is that it has to do with all the stuff about Epstein meeting with him in December, coming out in December 2021. That's the only thing really, you know, the only blip on the radar since like 2001 or 2002 about Mark Middleton anywhere, you know? It, it's so. also, like, it, it was so strange because I feel like he died like right in the middle of when we were researching this particular material. So, I know, like, it was nuts. <laughs> just really something yeah that that was super trippy yeah so we were wrapping up this this chapter and, and pretty much the book uh around the time news of mark middleton's death broke and <laughs> yeah. it, it blew our minds and then we saw that they were going to call it a suicide like before they announced it they were like um in, in lieu of uh you know gifts to the family donate to like you know some suicide hotline and we were yeah. like oh my god <laughs> and when, when the details came out that he had hung himself and shot himself you know the way that people generally, you know, commit suicide. Yeah. Well, the other thing I didn't mention about the death scene is that re- reportedly the sheriff, or I guess uh, police officers at the scene, they said there wasn't a lot of blood or anything. That's a quote at the scene. 
okay, but I, I just a shotgun blast to the chest. Like, how is there not a lot of like, how's that not grizzly? Yeah. You know? Oh, that's weird. And, and it reminds me of Vince Foster because, you know, Vince Foster's body they was allegedly very little blood at the scene. Like people that handled the body didn't even have to wear gloves because there was like mm -hmm. no blood. Right. But yeah. he, he, he supposedly shot himself in the mouth and that's messy. So there should have been blood everywhere and there wasn't. So the claim is like that he, he was moved. The body was moved in the case of Vince Foster. Like that's what a lot of people who question the official story, which the official story is just like so dumb for Vince Foster anyway, but yeah, you know, it, it's most likely his body was moved there and like he bled out somewhere else. So with Middleton, if there's no blood at the scene, that would make sense. But then, you know, that raises some questions. And then this Arkansas court like immediately comes in and they're like, Oh yeah, no videos, no photos. Nothing can ever be revealed about the Middleton death scene sealed forevermore. And that's the end of that, you know, and just it's nuts. pretty weird. Yeah. And I guess, you know, well, one thing that I wanted to mention, like while we're adding people to the Clinton death list, um, is that the guy who owned Gage, the company we're talking about. Oh, right. Uh, he, also he started died. cooperating. Yeah. While yeah. he was cooperating <laughs> with the FBI, uh, died of a respiratory ailment of like unknown nature is I think how the medical examiner put it. And he had been telling friends and family before, like the weeks prior to that happening, that he had been receiving death threats. And I think also a private detective that he had hired to like help him with this case had also like, I think somebody like might have shot through his like car windshield or something. Yeah, that's so nuts. I mean, the death toll is pretty big, but I wouldn't call it the Clinton kill list. I mean, yeah. it's not just the Clintons we're talking about here. The Clintons I, I are fronts for something else, right? Just like Epstein is middle management for something else. Like he's not the top of the food chain. Absolutely. Neither. Neither are the Clintons. All right. So I think we did a pretty good job today of unraveling what we could, you know, obviously yeah. we do more in the book, but, you know, unraveling what we could of the Mark Middleton mystery, you know, what was really going on with Mark Middleton and what, you know, may be there uh, in terms of, um, you know, his, it, the significance of Middleton meeting with Epstein during that particular period of time and why uh, the U.S. media will not touch the Epstein White House relationship in the mm -hmm. 90s. They just won't touch it which is mental. It, it was only, only really reported on the UK at all. And mid, same with Middleton's death. Yeah, I was going to say, like, so Middleton's death was only like uh, the daily, daily mail, daily mail. That's yeah. I think, I think the New York post might've republished one or two of these stories, but that's really it. And you think you would think with all the attention that Ep the Epstein scandals gotten in the media, the photo last December of Epstein shaking hands with Clinton at that white house historical fundraiser, would have gotten some attention, nope. right? Because they're obviously meeting in 1993 and Ghislaine Maxwell's there. Um, but no, they really like their narrative that they didn't meet until like 2001. Um, and so they won't change it. I'll just ignore yeah. all the other evidence about it. I mean, same thing with Bill Gates. Epstein and Bill Gates officially didn't meet till 2011, but there's 2000 articles from 2001 saying that Je Jeffrey Epstein had, had made buttloads of money through his business links with Bill Gates. It's like... Are these the articles okay. that like to vanish from the internet? Yeah, yeah, but there you yeah. can still find them. I mean, I found them. Yeah, uh, I just had to get creative. Um, you know, but they're there, and they're probably there on like the British uh, version of newspapers.com, You know, the British newspaper archive. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's all there. It's just you know, 
not uh, not easy to find on a Google search (laughs) (laughs) anymore or, you know, the Evening Standard, which is the outlet that published that particular article, their website, you know. Uh, But the silence is deafening in this case specifically. And I think, you know, the fact that you had two administrations step in to protect Middleton, who by all appearances is just like a relatively lowly White House aide. Like he's not even a, he's not the head of a department right mm-hmm. he's not a he's not a top advisor top aide to clinton he's an advisor to an advisor to clinton right right or an aide to one of clinton's a, top advisors aide to the chief of staff i guess yeah so well yeah but uh, you know eventually mclarty was also like you know senior counsel to the president or whatever yeah. like he wasn't chief of staff the whole time. Around, yeah. yeah so they bounced around but you know middleton was with mclarty the whole time but he, he wasn't definitely at the top of the white house hierarchy but then you have george w bush invoking executive privilege to shield this guy in a couple weeks before 9-11 yeah. <laughs> i mean it's just it, it's it nuts makes, and now you have u.s media just not covering it at all and we talked about this a little bit before but there's like this you know new yorker recent new yorker panel this panel of quote unquote experts on the epstein case um talking about like the unanswered questions. Yeah. Mark Middleton's not on there. (laughs) So, you know, that's, that's problematic to me. You know, obviously I was not invited to participate, but uh, looking at the panelists there, I didn't see a single one who's ever acknowledged really anything about Epstein's intelligence ties, except the possibility of a CIA one. Um, No mention of Israeli intelligence. So, um, you know, I can probably guess why I wasn't invited, but I'll just leave it at that. So anyway, hopefully um, it starts to change, you know, as the book gets out there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, Hopefully I won't end up like, like Ron Brown. Um, (laughs) You know, we'll see. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm not worried about that. So anyway, um, so Ed, thanks a lot for uh, joining me for a longer than usual podcast, but a lot of material that's very complicated to get into and you know we didn't really even get into the half of it you know there's obviously a lot more uh to unravel there but i think that's a good start for people to realize the significance of mark middleton and also just you know ken star right the guy investigating clinton corruption supposedly yeah. died like a couple days ago and he didn't get into any of this stuff like at all right and I mean, so it's pretty much he, the definition of a limited hangout right yeah there. and he and then he was epstein's defense attorney right so he I didn't, didn't he basically yeah totally and he also basically helped cover all this stuff up with middleton up he it didn't come up in his stuff at all he just totally like no thanks you know, and the same with the Vince Foster stuff glossed over that like key evidence in that case that was given to him. He lost or allegedly destroyed it and stuff. I mean, he was obviously, you know, not working for the people on that one. So there's yeah. a, actually, you know, the more you look at the Clinton era, the more insane it gets. And the fact that, you know, this was in the 90s. I can't even imagine the kind of stuff that goes on now. I mean, it's just mind boggling. There's <laughs> the so stuff much better got away with information control today that it's frightening to think about yeah totally well i think they've just bought off mainstream media a lot more than before and i think that happened in a big way like after 9-11 because you know for example i I, in some of my other work right i I, i've written about how like darpa's total information awareness they put john poindexter from iran contra in charge of there was like a huge chorus of dissent from mainstream media about how bad that was and how it was going yes. to erode privacy. Yeah. And that basically, that same program still basically exists as Palantir today, but the New York Times just writes like puff pieces on Palantir. <laughs> and, 
you talk about that in the book, right? In the, the second volume? Yeah, yeah, a little bit in, in, yeah. in the last chapter. But, you know, in, in other stuff I've talked to, you know, I've done a lot of stuff on, on DARPA and, and TIA because a lot of it was resurrected on, under the guise of combating COVID-19, like the TIA's biosurveillance program, the whole oh, wastewater absolutely. surveillance stuff. That's come to pass now. Um, under part of HHS and it's Palantir that's managing that data as part of HHS Protect and all of that stuff. So yeah, I mean, it literally still exists, but no one's complaining in mainstream media now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but they did in 2003. So I think a lot of this media consolidation that started, that got really crazy in the Reagan era, you know, and then by the 2000s, roughly you have like six companies own it all, but then you still have journalists that have platforms, right? Mm-hmm. that are complaining and allowed to publish that. No, I think they had to tighten their control of like mainstream media to a big degree. But now you have mainstream trust and mainstream media like cratering um, hugely because people know that I think even on the subconscious level that like they're not being told the whole truth about what's going on anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think that they could have they could have gotten away with it like really easily in maybe the first year or year and a half of COVID. But as it's gone on, uh, I think that, yeah, the, the, the shock effect I think it started to wear off and with that kind of a more critical attitude. Uh, yeah. yeah, but you're not really seeing it in mainstream media. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And if you're an independent, independent media, you're going to be like sidelined or. Yeah. Well, the censorship's only getting worse. Right. So anyway, I don't, um, you know, I hope that my, uh, that, that the book has an effect, but I just, uh, you know, I, I don't count on mainstream media to help me out with that one. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, has to come from people that read the book and like it. And so far, people that have read it have really liked it. You know, some review copies have, have gone out. Some people oh, have awesome. managed to get through both volumes, which is like 900 pages. <laughs> Shoot, that's, that's quick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not a quick read, and it's dense, too. Um, yeah. So, you know, but uh, reviews are very positive. Uh, so That's awesome. You know, it it's I'm I'm happy that people are gonna you know, are liking it so far because I really yeah. hope people read it because <laughs> you know ultimately you know talking about this type of stuff and what we talked about today I mean these problems haven't gone away and if they could get away with this stuff in the 1990s I mean it's mental and you know as we in the book unravel more about Middleton it becomes pretty clear that one of the crazy things that seems to have gone on under the the surface of this other stuff that we we talked about today was Mm -hmm. just a huge amount of text transfer and like weapon smuggling and all this stuff and a lot of it happening in the united states and it really seems to be a story that's like on level with what gary webb wrote about in dark alliance with the cia creating the crack epidemic in urban communities you have basically these same groups and it looks like southern air transport involved with wexner's limited was involved uh, mm-hmm. in bringing these weapons to, to fuel gang violence in the same areas that were being targeted by the CIA with the crack epidemic. And that's yeah, totally mental sure. because the whole idea of that was to pump, you know, uh, private prisons full of African-Americans and basically, you know, use private prison labor and slavery's back, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a whole nother side to this. And it looks like it was going on right in the middle of the Clinton administration, who, of course, have Iran-Contra stuff. I mean, that's totally nuts. So, yeah, I'm not going to get invited on the New York Magazine panel or whatever. <laughs> I'm talking about this stuff. I answered questions about Epstein. Yeah, I have many. And you're not going to like any of them. These well, are the questions you don't want to be answered. Well, you know? my, my big hope, you know, it's like, when, you know, helping you with this research. I feel like I ended up with just hundreds and hundreds of, like, questions that I wanted answered. Like, I just yeah. felt like we just, like, in a lot of ways, the, 
I felt like I was just posing questions instead of like answering them. And I'm hoping that as the book comes out, like maybe people who have information, you know, can come forward. I don't yeah. know. Like, Some people have mentioned that, and I really hope that happens because this yeah. whole thing with Middleton and Southern Air Transport with the Limited and this this Chinese weapon stuff is nuts. And I I really like I wish I had more time to get to the bottom of it, but you know it was sort of like crunch time, and you know I can't make the book like a thousand five hundred yeah. pages in three volumes. You know I mean just gotta wait for that volume three to come out. Oh man, don't even talk to me about that. <laughs> Like, sorry, sorry. Oh man, yeah. I need I need a little bit of breathing space, you know. But anyway, the whole point yep. is there's a lot to come out. And this was like 30 years ago. And I mean, think about all the stuff that's happened then that we don't know about. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here. So anyway, thanks, Ed, so yeah. much for helping me piece together um a lot of what's in the book and a lot of, you know, I think it's a good reference to build off of, and that's what I hope the book, the books. Uh, will be for people so you know we can figure out who's really <laughs> running the country yeah. and, and you know the u.s empire because it's not just the u.s you know client states and all of that so um anyway where can people listen to your podcast and support you and learn about how amazing and great you are <laughs> okay well let's see the podcast that's the pseudo doxology podcast and you can find that on patreon then I guess where I'm most prolific, because we're, we're really bad about having a consistently running podcast. People can find me on Twitter. Um, Twitter is at E.B. Berger. And that's B-E-R-G-E-R. So, you know, give me a follow. It'd be cool. Yeah, a lot of the stuff like the thing you mentioned about Adnan Khashoggi and King Solomon's mine, you can find little gems like that on, on Ed's Twitter feed. Um, yep. <laughs> if you want to know about these these crazy people during this period of time, and there's there's really no shortage of them. Uh, with that being said, hopefully people have a better idea of who Mark Middleton is, why he probably ended up dead, but you may have more questions and answers just like we do. But, you know, that's how that's how research and investigations work. You know, it's it takes time to get to the bottom of stuff, especially when multiple administrations are trying to keep you from finding out about it. So, um, again, uh, for people that are interested in uh, hearing uh, updates about the book or knowing about updates about the book or following my work, you can go to unlimitedhangout.com slash newsletter. Sign up for our newsletter. At the bottom of all our newsletters is info about how to purchase the book, either in a bundle form to get both um, – volumes for a reduced price or where to buy one or two separately. Uh, the best way in general, especially if you want the bundle, is just to go straight to the publisher, which is Trine Day, uh, T-R-I-N-E day.com. And if you go to upcoming releases, you might have to go to the second page, um, but you can find the the bundle there for sale as well as volumes one and two. You can also buy on Amazon or, you know, any other number of places, but the bundle is definitely going to be the most cost effective. Um, and soon there's going to be an ebook and audio book version available. So um, that may be most cost effective for some people because that's both volumes together, but that will be available after the physical copy is out. So if you're particularly eager to read the book, uh, you may have to settle for the physical copy, but I personally like physical copies. It's nice to hold a book and not have to look at a screen while you're reading um, relatively dense text <laughs> about uh, the criminal syndicates and their history that run our world. So um, again, thanks everyone for, for listening. Uh, and hopefully uh, if you're if you found this informative, uh, since no one else is really covering Mark Middleton, feel free to share this widely with people you think might be interested uh, in, in these kinds of topics. And yeah, so thanks everyone and catch you all next time.